Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. America faces a choice. This is Battleground America. Here's Tara Servatius. Americans, in fact, people the world over now live in a soft military dictatorship. That's the inescapable conclusion you walk away with when you listen to this interview between Tucker Carlson and Mike Benz. It'll change your life. I'm on my third time now, still absorbing it. And when you hear it, the most critical parts of it, you can't help but come away with an understanding that the Pentagon rules not just the world you live in, but the world Europeans live in. They decide who thinks what, who says what, who even ultimately gets to win political elections. It's remarkable. Mike Benz used to run the cyber portfolio at the State Department. Basically, that's the guy seeing all of our election influence operations all over the world. We run coups, the CIA, the State Department, and the Pentagon. We meddle in elections. We meddle bigly with our algorithms in smaller countries on social media. We've been doing that for a long time. In fact, it's been lauded. It was actually a pretty good thing when we did it during the Cold War. It really helped to stop the spread of communism the world over and to supplant it with freedom and free speech, the American way, good things that we projected into the world. But under Barack Obama, our military would be purged. That would change. And those operations were then turned against the West, bastardized, to promote the very Marxists and authoritarians, communists, people with that kind of mentality that our CIA once targeted and to silence the voices of people who want freedom, democracy and free speech of people who would criticize their governments. Anyone who isn't a leftist or an authoritarian, anyone who steps out of the official company line. Mike Benz had a ringside seat for this transition. He's trying to warn the world about it. The CIA, the State Department, the Pentagon used to meddle to stop the spread of communism. Now it's meddling to spread authoritarianism. And the same regime change operations that these American government organizations have been doing all over the world since 1948... Well, they're beginning to be done on Americans in American elections. Mike Benz now heads the Foundation for Freedom Online, and he's trying to raise the alarm. Our intelligence agencies are Pentagon's weapons of war. Their best, most manipulative programs for use online for the first time are being turned against Americans and used to silence us but also to push forward and promote the candidates, the Democrat candidates they feel will best serve them. Mike Benz is, we can say with some confidence, the expert in the world 
on how this happens. Mike Benz had the cyber portfolio at the State Department. He's now executive director of Foundation for Freedom Online. And we're going to have a conversation with him about a very specific kind of censorship, how the foreign policy establishment and defense contractors and, and DOD and, and just the whole cluster, the constellation of defense-related, publicly-funded institutions strip from us our freedom of speech. Sure. You know, one of the easiest ways to actually start the story is really with the story of internet freedom and its switch from internet freedom to internet censorship because free speech on the internet was an instrument of statecraft almost from the outset of the privatization of the internet in 1991. Uh, we quickly discovered through the uh, efforts of the Defense Department, the State Department, and our intelligence services that people were using the internet to congregate on blogs and forums. And free speech was championed more than anybody by the Pentagon, the State Department, and our sort of CIA cutout NGO blob architecture as a way to support dissident groups around the world in order to help them overthrow authoritarian governments as they were sort of billed. Uh, essentially, the internet, internet free speech allowed kind of insta-regime change operations uh, to be able to facilitate the foreign policy establishment's State Department agenda. Google is a great example of this. Google began as a DARPA grant uh, by Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they were Stanford PhDs. And they, they got their funding as part of a joint CIA-NSA program to chart how, quote, birds of a feather flock together online through search engine aggregation. And then one year later, they launched Google and then became a military contractor quickly. Thereafter, they got Google Maps by purchasing a CIA satellite software, essentially. Uh, and the ability to track to use free speech on the internet as a way to circumvent state control over media over in places like Central Asia or, or all around the world was seen as a way to be able to do what used to be done out of CIA station houses or out of embassies or consulates in a way that, that was totally turbocharged. And all of the internet free speech technology was initially created by our national security state. VPNs, virtual private networks to hide your, your IP address, Tor, the dark web to be able to buy and trail, uh, sell goods anonymously, end-to-end -end encrypted chats. All of these things were created initially as DARPA projects or as joint CIA-NSA projects to be able to help intelligence-backed groups to overthrow governments that were causing a problem uh, to the Clinton administration or the Bush administration or the Obama administration. And this plan worked magically from about 1991 until about 2014 uh, when there began to be an about face on Internet freedom and its utility. Now, the high watermark of the sort of Internet free speech moment was the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, when you had this one by one, all of the adversary governments of the Obama administration, Egypt, Tunisia, all began to be toppled in Facebook revolutions and Twitter revolutions. And you had the State Department working very closely with the social media companies to be able to keep social media online during those periods. There was a famous phone call from Google's Jared Cohen to Twitter to uh, not do their scheduled maintenance so that, uh, dis so that the preferred opposition group in Iran would be able to use Twitter uh, to, uh, to, to win that election. So it was an free speech was an instrument of statecraft from the national security state 
to begin with. All of that architecture, all the NGOs, the relationships between the tech companies and the national security state had been long established for freedom. In 2014, after the coup in Ukraine, there was an unexpected counter coup where Crimea and the Donbass broke away. And they broke away with essentially a military backstop that NATO was highly unprepared for at the time. They had one last Hail Mary chance, which was the Crimea annexation vote on, uh, in, in 2014. Uh, and when the hearts and minds of the people of Crimea voted uh, to join the Russian Federation, that was the last straw for the concept of free speech on the Internet in the eyes of NATO. As they saw it, the fundamental nature of war changed at that moment. And NATO at that point declared something that they first called the Gerasimov Doctrine, which was named after this Russian military uh, general uh, who they claimed made a speech that the fundamental nature of war has changed. You don't need to win military skirmishes to take over Central and Eastern Europe. All you need to do is control the media and the social media ecosystem because that's what controls elections. And if you simply get the right administration into power, they control the military. So it's infinitely cheaper than conducting a military war to simply conduct an organized political uh, influence operation over social media and legacy media. An industry had been created that spanned the Pentagon, the, the British Ministry of Defense, and Brussels into a organized political warfare outfit, essentially infrastructure that was created, initially stationed in Germany and in Central and Eastern Europe, to create psychological buffer zones, basically to create the ability to, to have the military work with the social media companies to censor Russian propaganda or to censor domestic right-wing populist groups in Europe who were rising in political power at the time because of the migrant crisis. So you had the systematic targeting by our State Department, by our IC, by the Pentagon, of groups like Germany's AFD, the alternative for Deutschland there, and for groups in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Now, when Brexit happened in 2016, it was, it, that, was, that was this crisis moment where suddenly they didn't have to worry just about Central and Eastern Europe anymore. It was coming westward, this idea of Russian control over hearts and minds. And so at, that was, Brexit was June 2016, the very next month at the, War, at the Warsaw Conference. NATO formally amended its charter to to exp expressly commit to hybrid warfare as their as this new NATO capacity. So they went from you know basically seventy years of of tanks to this explicit capacity building for for censoring tweets if they were deemed to be Russian proxies. And again, it's not just Russian propaganda. This was these were now Brexit groups or groups like Matteo Salvini in in Italy. Uh, or in Greece, or in Germany, or in, in Spain with the Vox Party. And now at the time, NATO was publishing white papers saying that the biggest threat NATO faces is not actually a military invasion from Russia. It's losing domestic elections across Europe in, to all these right-wing populist groups who, because they were mostly working-class movements, were campaigning on cheap Russian energy at a time when the U.S. was pressuring this energy diversification policy. And so they made the argument, after Brexit, now the entire rules-based international order would collapse unless the military took control over media, because Brexit would give rise to Frexit in France with Marine Le Pen, to Spexit in Spain with the Vox Party, to Italexit in, in, in Italy, to Grexit in Germany, to Grexit in Greece. The EU would come apart, so NATO would be killed without a single bullet being, uh, being 
fired. And then not only that, now that NATO's gone, now there's no enforcement arm for the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or the World Bank. So now the financial stakeholders who depend on the battering ram of the national security state would basically be helpless against governments around the world. So from their perspective, if the military did not begin to censor the Internet, every all of the democratic institutions and infrastructure that gave rise to the modern world after World War II would collapse. So you wait, can imagine wait, the wait, reaction five months later, right, Donald right Trump there. won the 2016 election. So you, you, well, you just told a remarkable story that I've never heard anybody explain as lucidly and crisply as you just did. But did anyone at NATO or anyone at the State Department pause for a moment and say, wait a second, we've just identified our new enemy as democracy within our own countries? I think that's what you're saying. They, they feared that the people, the citizens of their own countries would get their way. And they went to war against that. Yes. Americans may not have realized they were watching it, but the Arab Spring, where regime after regime after regime fell, starting with Egypt, it was an exercise of the raw power of this coup-generating system. They could do it online. They could weaponize people. Outside of Western countries, there really would be nowhere where we didn't at least partially control, if not fully control, who got elected to office with this incredible software. But you'll remember when Investors Business Daily under Barack Obama first reported that they were purging the military. Over 111 military leaders purged on purely political grounds under Obama. And that's around the time when the switch started to happen. It was going on at the State Department. It was going on at the CIA. People who had more of a Marxist communist viewpoint were installed to replace them. And for the first time, there sat this system that could do regime change online and the people driving it were the communists that that system used to drive out. And almost overnight, the focus changed. But essentially, there's, there was no moral quandary at first with respect to the creation of the censorship industry when it started out in Germany and in, and in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and in Sweden and Finland, uh, there began to be a more diplomatic debate about it after Brexit. And then uh, it, was, it became full throttle when Trump was elected. And what little resistance there was, was washed over by the rise and saturation of Russiagate, which basically allowed them to not have to deal with the moral ambiguities of censoring your own people, because if Trump was a Russian asset, you no longer really had a traditional free speech issue. It was a national security issue. It was only after Russiagate died in, uh, in July 2019 when Robert Mueller basically choked on the stand for three hours and revealed he had absolutely nothing after two and a half years of investigation that the foreign to domestic switcheroo took place where they took all of this censorship architecture spanning DHS the FBI, the CIA, the DOD, the DOJ, and then the thousands of government-funded NGO and private sector mercenary firms were all basically transited from a foreign from a foreign predicate, a Russian disinformation predicate, to a democracy predicate by saying that disinformation is not just a threat when it comes from the Russians, it's actually an intrinsic threat to democracy itself. And so by that, they were able to launder the entire democracy promotion regime change toolkit uh, just in time for the 2020 election. 
Now, think about what we just learned in the last two weeks that the CIA partnered, I'm still not over this, with no less than four other countries' intelligence agencies to illegally surveil Donald Trump and to make up the Russia collusion hoax. Not to gather real intelligence, but to gather fake intelligence that could be passed on, things that could be used to generate the Russia collusion hoax, which we now understand was the pretext for spying on these people. And we're learning the pretext for turning the whole national security apparatus that had been used to combat the spread of communism against people who don't want to be ruled by an authoritarian regime, against democratic movements, against populist movements, against Americans who just want to be free. Now, wait till you hear who's doing it from Mike Benz, the same CIA who made up the Russia collusion hoax. I'll have more on that in just a sec. But first, I want to thank our sponsor, PhD Weight Loss, for sponsoring this podcast, but also for the 29 pounds that I've lost in just six months. And also for the year, I've now kept it off. Yep, this is my one year anniversary. I feel like I could do this forever. I've actually been a size six for a year. If you had told me that in the past, I would be just gobsmacked. How? How would I do it? I've lost the same 10 pounds and regained it so many times. But their system is the easiest I've ever used. And believe me, I've tried them all. If you want to find out how I did this and how maybe you could do this too, and by the way, you could do this no matter where you live, go to myphdweightloss.com. That's myphdweightloss.com. Now back to the podcast. The Atlantic Council, which was which was this major facilitator uh, between the government, uh, between government to government censorship. The Atlantic Council is a group that was one of Biden's biggest political backers. They, they, uh, they build themselves as NATO's think tank. Now, the Atlantic Council has seven CIA directors on its board. A lot of people don't even know that seven CIA directors are still alive, let alone all concentrated on, on the board of a single organization that's kind of the heavyweight in the censorship industry. They get annual funding from the Department of Defense, the State Department, and CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy. The Atlantic Council in January 2017 moved immediately to pressure European governments to pass censorship laws to create a transatlantic flank attack on free speech in exactly the way that Rick Stengel essentially called for to have U.S. mimic European censorship laws. One of the ways they did this was by getting Germany to pass something called Nets DG in August 2017, which was, which, which was essentially kicked off the era of uh, of automated censorship in the U.S. What NetsDG required was, unless, unless social media platforms wanted to pay a $54 million fine for each instance of speech, each post left up on their platform for more than 48 hours that had been identified as hate speech, um, they, would, they would be fined basically into bankruptcy when you aggregate $54 million over tens of thousands of posts per day. And the, the safe haven around that was if they deployed artificial intelligence-based censorship technologies, which had been, again, created by DARPA to take on ISIS, to be able to scan and ban speech automatically. And this was, a, this gave, you know, I call these weapons of mass deletion. These are essentially the ability to censor tens of millions of posts with just a few lines of code. And the, the way this is done is by aggregating Basically, the, the field of censorship science fuses together two disparate groups of study, if you will. There's the sort of political and social scientists who are the sort of thought leaders of what should be censored. 
And then there are the sort of quants, if you will. These are the programmers, the computational data scientists, computational linguistics. Every university, there's over 60 universities now who get federal government grants to do this censorship, uh, the censorship work and the censorship preparation work, where what they do is they create these code books of the language that people use, the same way they did for ISIS. They did this, for example, with COVID. They created these, these COVID lexicons of what dissident groups were saying about mandates, about masks, about vaccines, about high-profile individuals like Tony Fauci or, um, or uh, Peter Daszak or any of these others pr protected VIP in individuals whose reputations had to be protected online. And they created these code books. They broke things down into, into narratives. The Atlantic Council, for example, was a part of this, this government-funded consortium, something called the Virality Project, which, which mapped 66 different narratives that dissidents were talking about around COVID, everything from COVID origins to vaccine efficacy. And then they broke the, down these 66 claims into all the different factual subclaims. And then they plugged these into these essentially machine learning models to be able to have a constant world heat map of what everybody was saying about COVID. And whenever something started to trend that was bad for what the Pentagon wanted or was bad for what Tony Fauci wanted, they were able to take down tens of millions of posts. They did this in the 2020 election with mail-in ballots. It was the wait, same Wait, 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 may I ask you, wait, wait, I, I'm sorry, I just got to have to, there's, there's so much here and it's so shocking. So you're saying the Pentagon, our Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense censored Americans during the 2020 election cycle? Yes, they did this. They, oh, they did this through the, so, so there's, the two most censored events in human history, I would argue, to date are the 2020 election and the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'll, I'll explain, you know, how I arrived there. So the, the, the 2020 election was determined by mail-in ballots. And I, I'm not weighing into the substance of whether mail-in ballots were or were not a legitimate or safe and reliable form of, of, of voting. That's a completely independent topic from my perspective than the censorship issue one. But the censorship of, of mail-in ballots is, is, is really one of the most extraordinary stories in our American history, I would argue. What happened was is you had this plot within the Department of Homeland Security. Now, this gets back to what we were talking about with the State Department's Global Engagement Center. You had this group within the Atlanta Council and the Foreign Policy Establishment, which began arguing in 2017 for the need for a permanent domestic censorship government office to serve as a quarterback for what they called a whole-of-society counter-misinformation, counter-disinformation alliance. It, that just means censorship, the counter-mis-disinfo. But the whole of, their whole-of-society model explicitly proposed that, that we need every single asset within society to be mobilized in a whole-of-society effort to stop misinformation online. It was that much of an existential threat to democracy. And so, it, it, but they this, they fixated in 2017 that it had to be centered within the government. And you can bet they're waiting again to do it again in 2024. And the more you hear the parameters of it, the creepiness of seven CIA directors, former CIA directors directing this whole thing for NATO. Are you kidding me? Do we have a one world government? Take a listen to how in depth this is and how it works. And tell me it's not a soft military dictatorship run on the world stage. They said mis, dis, and malinformation online are a form of cybersecurity attack. They are a cyber attack because they are happening online. 
And they said, well, actually, Russian disinformation is we're, we're actually protecting democracy in elections. We don't need a Russian predicate after Russiagate died. So just like that, you had this cybersecurity agency be able to legally make the argument that your tweets about mail-in ballots, if you undermine public faith and confidence in them as a legitimate form of voting, was now you were now conducting a cyber attack on U.S. critical infrastructure by, by articulating misinformation on Twitter. And just like that, now what they did then is they Wait, then so in other words, a bunch of... Complaining about election fraud is the same as taking down our power grid. Yes, you could literally be on your toilet seat at 930 on, on a Thursday night and tweet, I think that mail-in ballots are illegitimate. And you were essentially then caught up in the crosshairs of the Department of Homeland Security classifying you as conducting a cyber attack on U.S. critical infrastructure because you were doing misinformation online in the cyber realm and misinformation is a cyber attack on democracy when it undermines public faith and confidence in, in our democratic elections and our democratic institutions. And they, they would end up going far beyond that. They would actually define democratic institutions uh, as being another thing that was a cyber security attack to, uh, to undermine. And lo and behold, the mainstream media is considered a democratic institution. That would come later. Incredibly, they began building the infrastructure and dispatching it months ahead of the election to censor and pre-censor any mention of the idea that absentee ballots could be used for voter fraud. That's oddly specific. Before the election? What ended up happening was, in advance of the 2020 election, starting in April of 2020, although this goes back before, you had this essentially never-Trump neocon Republican DHS working with essentially NATO on the national security side and the, and essentially the DNC, if you will, uh, to, to use DHS as the launching point for a government-coordinated mass censorship campaign spanning every single social media platform on earth in order to pre-censor the ability to dispute the legitimacy of mail-in ballots. I got a note here, unlike so many hosts who fixated for a while on the claims that Dominion somehow stole the election or something, I was always fixated and focused on the election fraud through the mail-in ballots. I've documented it exhaustively here on the podcast. I'm not going to do it again. That's exactly where they didn't want you to look. Take a listen to how they did this how they strangled any conversation around fake registrations, fake registrations requesting absentee ballots, and then those absentee ballots coming back in. A phenomenon I've documented state after state after state. By the way, those same fake registrations and actual real registrations of dead people or people who've moved to another state but are still registered in their old swing state and they don't vote anymore. That's the heart of this ballot fraud that they were obsessed with making sure no one could talk about. The Minerva Initiative is the Psychological Warfare Research Center of the Pentagon. They, they, this group was, was doing social media spying and narrative mapping for the Pentagon until the 2016 election happened, and then were, were repurposed into a partnership with the Department of Homeland Security to censor you know, 22 million Trump tweets 
uh, pro-Trump tweets about mail-in ballots. And then the fourth institution, as I mentioned, was the Atlantic Council, who's got seven CIA directors on the board. So one after another, it is exactly what Ben Rhodes described it during the Obama era as the blob. The foreign policy establishment, it's, either, it's, the, it's the Defense Department, the State Department, or the CIA every single time. And of course, this was because they were, they were threatened by Trump's foreign policy. So the same people who we now have learned in recent weeks made up Russia collusion, used it as a predicate to turn apparatus that had always been used to collapse and topple foreign governments and rout the Russians when they were Soviets. They turned it on us under the guise that Trump was a Russian disinformer, a Russian agent. Ergo, military equipment meant to flip governments, meant to be used in coups, was now being used against us. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. And by all appearances, it was being used to steal an election, which is exactly what they do when they run these coups in other countries. Think Arab Spring. We know that was a famous one. We know our CIA and State Department did it. That's indisputable. Think the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. That would eventually lead to the current Ukraine war, where a duly elected, legally elected pro-Russian president was not only overthrown violently, but an attempt on his life through assassination was made as he tried to flee the country for Russia. These people, this system, was the architect of all that. But their grand coup was to come after Donald Trump. And so they set up this, this basically constellation of State Department, Pentagon, uh, and, and IC networks to run this pre-censorship campaign, which by their own math, had 22 million tweets on Twitter alone. And mind you, they just on 15 platforms. This is hundreds of millions of posts, which were all scanned and banned or throttled so that they could not be amplified or they exist in a sort of limited state purgatory or had these frictions affixed to them in the form of fact-checking labels where you couldn't actually click through the thing or you had to, it was, it was an inconvenience to be able to share it. Now they did this seven months before the election. Because at the time, they, they were worried about the perceived legitimacy of a Biden victory in the case of a so-called red mirage blue shift event. They, they knew the only way that Biden would be able to was would win mathematically uh, was through the disproportionate Democrat use of mail-in ballots. They knew there would be a crisis because it was going to look extremely weird if if Trump looked like he won by seven states. In November, you know, uh, and then three days later, it comes out actually the election switch. I mean, that. That would put the election crisis of the Bush-Gore election uh, on a level of steroids that the national security state said, well, the, the, the public will not be prepared for. So what we need to do is we need to, in advance, we need to pre-censor the ability to even question the legitimacy. This took out. Wait, wait, may, may I ask you to pause right there? Key influences, so, so what you're mm -hmm. saying is, what you're suggesting is they knew the outcome of the election seven months before it was held. It looks very bad. Certainly what they <laughs> yes, did is... It, yes, Mike, it does look very bad. <laughs> uh, 
you know, and especially when you combine this with the fact that this is right on the heels of the impeachment, the Pentagon-led, CIA-led impeachment. You know, it was uh, Eric Cimarella from the CIA and it was the Vinmins from the Pentagon uh, who led the impeachment of Trump in late 2019 over, uh, you know, an alleged phone call around withholding Ukraine aid. This same network, which came straight out of the Pentagon uh, hybrid warfare network, uh, military censorship network created after the first, you know, Ukraine crisis in 2014, were the lead architects of the uh, Ukraine impeachment in 2019, and then essentially came back on steroids as part of the 2020 election censorship operation. So exactly what is this? I mean, the Atlantic Council, seven CIA directors running this under NATO. What would you call that? Mike Benz has a galling description for it. Again, remember Benz had a front row seat for this. He ran the cyber portfolio out of the State Department. In other words, all our manipulation programs used in other countries. He more than anyone would recognize what this is. You're not describing democracy. I mean, you're describing a country in which democracy is impossible. What I'm essentially describing is military rule. I mean, this is, I mean, what's happened with the rise of the censorship industry is a total inversion of the idea of democracy itself. You know, democracy sort of draws its legitimacy from the idea that it is uh, ruled by consent of the people of the people being ruled. That is, it's not really being ruled by an overlord because the government is actually just our will expressed by our consent with who we vote for. Um, the whole push after the 2016 election and after Brexit and after a couple of other, you know, social media run elections that went the wrong way from what the State Department wanted, like the 2016 Philippines election, uh, was to completely invert everything that we described as being the underpinnings of a democratic society in order to deal with the threat of free speech on the internet. And what they essentially said is, we need to redefine democracy from being about the will of the voters to being about the sanctity of democratic institutions. And who are the the democratic institutions? Oh, it's us. You know, it's the military, it's NATO, it's the IMF and the World Bank. It's 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 uh, it's the mainstream media uh, who uh, it is the NGOs. And oh, the, of course, these NGOs are largely State Department funded or IC funded. It's essentially all of the elite establishments uh, that were under threat from domestic, the rise of domestic populism that declared their own consensus to be the new definition of democracy. Because if you define democracy as being the strength of democratic institutions rather than a focus on the will of the voters, then what you're left with is essentially democracy is just the consensus building architecture within the con- within the democratic institutions themselves. In other words, a dictatorship, but it's a dictatorship without borders, a dictatorship only really tethered to congressional oversight through funding a world dictatorship. Informal, yes, still at this point, but becoming more formal, more concrete all the time. What does this remind me of? This reminds me of exactly the way I described the CIA to you two weeks ago, almost two weeks ago, when we learned that the CIA had partnered with four other intelligence agencies, all of it together called Five Eyes. But the intelligence agencies of the UK and Australia and Canada and New Zealand to do what? to create, to fabricate 
the Russia collusion hopes to fabricate the intelligence that could be used against Donald Trump. All of it fake. Hillary worked on it, too, and so did the FBI. But what did I tell you at the time? That the CIA had transcended America, was tethered to it only by funding, was acting more like a nation state floating up above us somewhere in partnership with these other intelligence agencies from these Five Eye countries who together in mass would turn on the democracy movements, the freedom movements, the conservative movements, the patriot movements within their own countries. In other words, you don't just have one targeting you politically. You have all of them bearing down on you from inside and from outside of your country. Donald Trump was attacked by nothing less than an international intelligence and military dictatorship that's only gotten stronger since the 2020 election in ways we probably don't even know right now. Oh, and having been an insider to this, Mike Benz explains what they mean when they use the term our democracy. That drives me nuts. We are republic. The word democracy doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution, but republic does. Why are these people brainwashing us with this? What do they mean? They mean this. And their censorship machine is at the center of it. The amount of work these people do, I mean, for example, we mentioned the Atlantic Council, which is one of these big coordinating mechanisms for the oil and gas industry in a region, for the for the finance and the J.P. Morgans and, and the BlackRocks in a region, for the NGOs in the region, for the media in the region. All of these need to reach a consensus. And that process takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work and a lot of negotiation. From their perspective, that's democracy. Democracy is getting the NGOs to agree with BlackRock, to agree, to agree with, the, with the Wall Street Journal, you know, to, to you know, agree with uh, you know, the, the community and activist groups who are onboarded with respect to a particular initiative. That is the difficult vote building process from their perspective. If, at the end of the day, a bunch of you know, populist groups decide that they like a, a truck driver who's popular on TikTok more than the you know, carefully constructed consensus of the NATO military brass, well, then, from their perspective, you know, that is now an attack on democracy. And this is what this whole branding effort was. And, of course, democracy, again, has that magic regime change predicate where democracy is, is our magic watchword to be able to overthrow governments from the ground up in a sort of color revolution style whole of society effort to topple a, a, a democratically elected government from the inside. For example, as we did in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych was democratically elected by the Ukrainian people, like, like him or hate him. I'm not even uh, uh, issuing an opinion there. But the fact is, is we color revolution him out of office. We January 6th him out of office, yes. actually, if, to be frank. I mean, with respect to the, you had, you know, a State Department funded right sector thugs and, you know, $5 billion worth of civil society money pumped into this to overthrow a democratically elected government in the name of democracy. And they took that special set of skills home. And now it's here perhaps potentially to stay. And this has fundamentally changed the the nature of American governance because of the threat of, you know, one small voice becoming popular on social media. But in the face of all of this, there's one thing, one miraculous thing that's different from the 2020 election. Elon Musk owns Twitter. And one of the first things he did after buying Twitter was go in and release in the Twitter files a lot of the junk they did during that election. He turned on them. Today, Twitter is an absolute powerhouse. It gives me almost ESP-like powers just prepping for the show because whatever trends there, 
is going to be big news in the next three to four days. If I can hit it before it hits the news, then I'm going to be way ahead for my audience. I use it all the time. What does this mean? Twitter isn't just a bastion of free speech these people haven't managed to control. It is the home of free speech in the world. It is the place now setting the conversation, deciding what trends, deciding what's talked about, pioneering the news through popular consensus, through popular interest, exactly the way things should be. I can't tell you what a breathless thing this is, should he continue to do it, to stand in the face of this cabal. If you look back to September of last year, his father did an interview in which he said he was afraid his son would be assassinated. He should be. When finally asked about it in December of that year, Elon Musk agreed, saying the risk of his assassination is quite significant. And he specifically mentioned quite significant following the release of the first installment of the Twitter files that focused on the Hunter Biden cover up. It's not an exaggeration to say the only thing that stands between us and complete and total tyranny at the worldwide level with no escape is Twitter, is Elon Musk continuing to live, to breathe and to allow Twitter to be a forum for the world. Without it, these people would steamroll right over us. But again, the good news is we didn't even have that in 2020. But will Elon Musk's future look like that of Miles Guo? Miles Guo is well on his way to prison being prosecuted or really I should say persecuted by uh, the Department of Justice. He's the owner of Getter, which is on death watch right now. Getter was the great hope before Twitter to be a free speech space. Every one of these like Parler, which is now defunct and now Getter, which is on the verge of being defunct, goes down. And right now, according to The Wall Street Journal, Elon Musk is under criminal investigation by the Department of Justice. The same pattern as with Miles Guo and Getter. What's critical is that people understand that this military, CIA, intelligence, FBI, censorship apparatus exists. And that a lot of our politicians are probably compromised by it, not out of even blackmail or something conspiratorial, but just out of fear. How could any one person go up against it? I don't know what the answer is, but I think Elon Musk has the right idea. But the most critical part is that people come to know that it exists and it controls every one of these big narratives and stomps anything that's in its way of the narrative. And it, more than any candidate, is our foe in the 2024 election and anything that would come after. And I want to leave you with this. Imagine if it became clear, clear to them, clear to us, clear to the world that our side couldn't win elections anymore. If they managed to win this one, even to win it with Joe Biden, as unpopular as he is, these people will stop the pretense. They'll stop hiding. They'll come out. The dictatorship will be more in your face and it'll be more stringent. We'll see people like Musk called off if they believe they can't win. They're only barely hiding now. We need to drag them into the light before it's too late. Battleground America with Tara Servatius. Please subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Share with friends, family, and other free thinkers. Thanks for listening. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.